before we record, did you get that video I sent you? Uh, yeah. Hold on. I'll open it. Yeah, open it up. What the fuck? This is just the Halloween 3 Silver Shamrock thing? Yeah, just just keep watching it. Just watch it all the way. Dude, I've seen this a thousand times. I don't need to watch this again. Come on, when did you get going? There's something special specifically about this video. I watched it about seven days ago. And uh, let's just say you've been cursed, asshole. So uh, yeah, you're going to need to do something about that or your head Wait. is going to turn into bugs in seven days. What? Yeah, you just watch Curse video. Wait, you just put a curse on me? Yeah. God damn it. It's Eric. You could fix it pretty easily, just show it to somebody <laughs> within seven days. This is like the third time, dude. I told you to quit doing this. God damn it. Alright, fine. Fuck it. Are, are you still seeing that asshole with the towel on his head pointing at stuff around your room? <laughs> yeah. God damn it. I'll send it to somebody. It's fine. Whatever. Let's get going. Alright. Welcome, guys, to... Another spooptacular episode of Watch If You Dare. <laughs> a cursed season of spoop. Cursed season of spoop, where we're dealing with cursed objects, and, you know, this unfortunately happens every once in a while. Just, you know, gotta figure out what the cure is, but we'll deal with that later. Oh, shit. What's that girl with the long black hair standing behind you, Aaron? Oh, Jesus Oh, Christ. no. The curse hasn't been lifted. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... For any first-time listeners, which, why are you tuning in this late? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we discuss fears, phobias, and themes of horror movies across all ages, subgenres, categories, etc., and discuss just how relevant they are to today's watchers and for horror newbies, so cool this is our second episode of season of spoop in which we are covering cursed objects so we started with christine in which we discussed the movie about a cursed killer car now we are going to be discussing ringu from 1998 which is all about a cursed vhs tape so fun times <laughs> we're gonna really show our age with this episode because i don't know if we'll have listeners who don't know what a vhs tape is it's, it's certainly a possibility now in this day and age that's the thing you know there are definitely going to be some younger listeners who are like what the fuck is a vhs tape but then there's plenty of people who have seen the american ring i would hope right yeah that was big shit when we were middle school yeah so i, I don't think it's that offbeat you know it would be one thing if Not it was all. like oh this cursed laser disc you know <laughs> this cursed betamax this cursed mp3 player you know the very first that could only hold 30 songs or, or whatever yeah either way yeah we're gonna get into that in just a minute but as always let's talk some recommendations Derek, what have you been getting into that is horror related be it movies tv shows books comic books video games music what have you got to discuss with listeners yeah and don't forget listeners this is for you guys too so if you hear something we talk about and want to check it out here you go let's go off the beaten path a little bit like i usually do i'm doing music again uh first thing i want to recommend is an album called master of brutality by church of misery <laughs> all right yeah <laughs> right off the get-go the album contains artwork and booklet features and sketches by john wayne gacy um <laughs> yep. including him dressed as pogo the clown every one of their songs uh with the exception of one which is a cover has to do with a serial killer the first song which beats ass if i'm being honest is california and it's all about ed kemper jesus the 
also have a Peter Sutcliffe song, a Herbert Mullen song, and then, of course, the last song, the titular Master Brutality, is all about John Wayne Gacy. Relevant to the movie we're discussing, this is a Japanese doom metal band, but, like, it feels very Americana in terms of the subject matter and kind of is one of those doom metal, stoner metal albums that sounds like it could be from even a Norwegian doom stoner metal or yeah. an American doom stoner, like, just very universal sounding. But, like, it kind of rips, if I'm being honest. It's very crunchy, very dark sounding, but also I really dig the gravelly voice of the singer. And, yeah, there's a little bit of try-hardness to it with the obsession of serial killers. But the thing that's interesting to me is back in 2001, the true crime has always been popular, sure. But, like, the true crime craze wasn't really at the fever pitch it is right now. Yeah. And it has been in the past decade. And really, you know, the advent of podcasts really helped that. Because what, last podcast on the left and my favorite murder, like, and serial are like some of the biggest podcasts in the world and they're all about true crime and serial killers but it is interesting that this album dropped back in 2001 and was basically kind of ahead of its time in that regard of being like kind of into the serial killer like I want to say fandom that's a bad word but like the interest <laughs> yeah. in it and it's just fascinating to me that serial killers are a very American kind of thing or at least the idea of true crime serial killers that are popular around here it's like a widespread phenomenon and fascination culturally yes definitely yeah it's just interesting to me that this japanese band really kind of capitalizes on that and it's this isn't the only album that does this a lot of their albums are all about referencing true crime legendary people or legendary another bad word but like true crime like <laughs> infamous villains of true crime and serial killers and everything else like their instrumental track on this album is just called green river and it's all about the green river killer gary ridgeway this whole episode with you talking about the subject is just gonna be like but you know what i mean oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, this album's fucking great it's all about serial killers of murder <laughs> but you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of rips ass. I mean, yeah. but like a lot of the other doom metal and stoner metal that I've even brought up on our show, but love that both of us listen to totally. um, are yeah. all about like satanic ritual murders and shit. So like, yeah, it is yeah, just one like, of those things that's weird when you start talking about it aloud and you kind of realize like, yeah, it's kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the thing that's wild to me is this band, like I said, they've been around even before then because they dropped a split and another, maybe an EP or something before this album. But this was the first major release. It looks like Back in 2001 and they're still around but the only member that's been like constant i think is the guitar player or the bass player if i remember looking up like they've had people change in it they're basically like king crimson at this point where robert fripp is king crimson sure it's the yeah. bassist tatsu mikami he has just been with the band since 1995 and then the current vocalist is from 2015 to now that's it and then if you look at their former members this is a long list of people so it's not the same people like when you listen to the, this album specifically it's not necessarily the same sound or people you're going to be hearing when you listen to their other albums but i have to shout out our mutual friend sean gremion who has not been on the show yet actually but he uh he's been to a lot of concerts with you and i aaron he was the one who turned me on to church of misery really good shit but it is very dark and material and uh, like i said there is a little bit of that edge lord energy to it with the obsession of serial killers yeah you're kind of making me want to go back and re-listen to it because i never really super got into this group 
but it's also a group that I never really dug into super hard, but I need to go back and check out this album since you're bringing it back up again. Yeah, Master Brutality is an easy listen. It's not like the best Doom stoner I've listened to, but it's pretty solid straight through. Also, too, the album opens with Edmund Kemper talking to a severed head from one of his interviews. So, like, just FYI, when you start this album, the first thing you're hit with is a clip of Edmund Kemper. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Second thing, this is going to be a book, really a novella, because it is like barely over 100 pages long. It's going to be pretty relevant to the movie we're doing today. I think I know where you're going. So this novella is called Nothing But Blackened Teeth. Yep. It is written by Cassandra Ka, a Malaysian writer. Cassandra uses they, them pronouns, so I will be referring to them as they and them. Nothing But Black and Teeth is the story about a group of friends who rent out this old, like, Keenan-era mansion to, like, spend the night and use it as, like, kind of a small wedding venue for two of the, the friend group. It turns into a bit of this night of drinking and weird games that they are playing. And in the backdrop of all this, there's a lot of pressure between the friends. Kind of honestly like the Dark Offerings. Uh, you know how, like, everyone went at each other's throats and the group started unfolding with all this past drama and everything very much the same in this book all these people have beef with each other like the main character has had a lot of mental illness issues everyone has like done all this in dating and like one of the people who's getting married do they still have feelings for this other person yeah and like why is that person invited it's messy yeah it's a lot of messy like friend drama honestly kind of reminded me of some of the friend drama we had in college between like in dating and stuff but like this is really messy friend drama but But what starts happening is there's a haunting going on and they are being haunted by specifically a yokai, actually. This thing is in the backdrop to the point where it almost becomes part of the story where everyone knows it's there. And it's not really doing anything like actively for a little while. Like it's a lot of it is observing and kind of making the situation worse rather than like a ghost that's killing people off one by one, which I thought going into it, I thought it was gonna be like this ghost story where like one by one they get picked off. But it's actually just kind of more like focused on the friends unraveling and all this drama coming to the surface, bubbling up. And this yokai is just feeding into it the name of the yokai is actually called and there's going to be a lot of probably bad pronunciation fyi listeners you know i am a bad i'm bad at pronunciation so i will do my best through this episode <laughs> but uh the name of the yokai is the ohaguro batari and it literally okay. does translate to nothing but blackened teeth It's more disturbing than deadly. It's a yokai that's a lot like a woman in white type yokai. It's described as this woman that's wearing a beautiful wedding kimono. Legend has it she calls single men over to her. But once they get too close, they're expecting this beautiful woman and it turns around. And it's literally this woman that has no eyes and just a big giant smile with like blackened teeth. Sure. It also references that back in the day, apparently blackened teeth was a sign of marital status and high status in Japanese culture. Yes. A lot of people report that really the yokai all it tries to do is stir shit up. It's more of like one of those yokai that's just a little stinker. It's not trying to kill anyone. It just feeds off of human fear and enjoys human fear. Yeah. So it likes scaring people and that's about it. And honestly, Cassandra, they do a good job of staying true to what this yokai really is. Because the yokai, I mean, it does do a couple things proactively, but otherwise it's just kind of like reveling the whole time and all their friend misery. 
Another thing that took me down another rabbit hole, this yokai is also associated with another one. It is called Noparabo, uh, which is translated as the faceless monk. Also is a yokai that resembles a human in nearly every way, except it has no face. They're not as bombastic as the nothing but black and teeth yokai. They're more quiet, but they kind of do the same thing. They seem to enjoy scaring humans, but they're not one of the deadly yokai. This novella, by the way, I read it in one sitting and I read it in about two hours. I probably could have read it in less than two hours. I read it when I was getting an infusion for a medication for Crohn's. The infusion took about two hours and I stopped a couple times to talk with the nurse. So I I could have read it in an hour and a half yeah it is a very quick read here's the thing i liked it i had a good time japanese horror in general there's something about it that just clicks with me really well i will say that i think some people might get annoyed by the character work i think some people might get annoyed by like cassandra cause writing style they seem to use a lot of descriptors and imagery that seems like almost a little too intelligent for its own good But I thought it was well done. I thought it was a good, fun read. Certainly did the job for me. I read it, like I said, in that one sitting in Infusion. Had a blast with it. Yeah, the characters are a little unlikable. Like, all of them are kind of unlikable to the point where you don't know how they're friends. Yeah, (laughs) that's one of the main criticisms I've heard of the book is just every character is aggravating yeah and shallow and unlikable and you just don't really quite enjoy hanging with these characters but let's be real that's also so many slasher movies that's kind of the trope that's so many shitty friend groups too like i have been around groups of friends that necessarily weren't mine and it felt like from an outside perspective that they were all kind of trying to one-up each other or like put down certain people not necessarily even in a sarcastic way but you're right like there are so many like tropes in other horror that are exactly like that yeah the the friend group you kind of question how they are and people are aware of those tropes and people are forgiving of those tropes yeah right oh we just are gonna see them all get killed anyway so whatever and it's i'm sure the same thing here yeah and i'm and by the way i liked the ending the ending actually was like kind of a very I don't even say bittersweet. It was like pretty bitter, but it wasn't necessarily the way I thought it was going to end. And again, it was this wasn't the story I thought it was going to be. I I thought this ghost was going to just murder the fuck out of a lot of these people. But it ends in a way that I didn't expect, um, which I really enjoyed. And it ended in a way almost like a head full of ghosts where you're not quite sure, like, was there a degree of supernatural influence in this thing happening this sure this climax action or was that all just like an excuse to lead to what actually happens so i enjoyed it i would probably spend more time like talking about the negatives if this was a longer read i am a fast reader but i'm not the fastest so like i think most people can read this at least in two or three sittings and so like if you're curious at all even if you wind up hating it it's not going to eat up any of your time the font is big it's like barely 100 pages long like it's a very quick read it doesn't waste any time but i enjoyed it i am interested to see what else cassandra Kaw has written i want to read other stuff they've done they are currently working on a game called world of horror they're the co-writer of it it is like an 8-bit game that is basically a junji ito story if it were a game okay so yes i am it's inspired by the works of junji ito and hp lovecraft it's actually a a one-bit pixel art game um not an 8-bit game Nothing but black and teeth. I thought it was good. It does have problems. I think it's 
length is yeah. not an issue whatsoever. It's not enough of a time sink to be bitter about, yeah. you know, not fully enjoying it. Yeah. The last thing I'll bring up is a movie. This is a little buck wild. So I was on our Twitter a couple weeks ago, and the great Patrick Bromley of F This Movie fame, we're big fans of his uh, and F This Movie podcast, he posted like a tweet about this movie, this Canadian slasher, being a very underrated slasher called Curtains. Behind every curtain... Someone is waiting. Someone is watching. Someone is hiding. What waits behind the curtains is exciting, frightening, sensual, terrifying. And bizarre. Curtains reveal what you expect and what you don't. Curtains, the ultimate nightmare um so i watched (laughs) 1983's curtains directed by richard klupka and peter r simpson the best experiment and can we literally put two different movies together and just say it's the same movie so after i watched it i tweeted at patrick and he said isn't it wild it's literally two movies put together and when i brought it up with you later or off mic you said the same thing This movie's fucking buck wild, by the way. Like, yeah. In a weird, surrealistic, odd way. I would say it is an underrated slasher. Is it the most competent underrated slasher? No, this movie's kind of a fucking mess. But despite all of the incompetence and despite being two movies kind of mashed into one, I think that there's something to be said about this movie. I think it's an interesting watch. The horror works. It has Samantha Egger, who I hadn't seen since we'd done The Brood. The Brood. A lot of the cast is kind of wild in this. Lynn Griffin is probably my favorite character in this movie, and she's like the only one that kind of sees the whole like, this is fucking weird, right? And I hadn't seen her since like Black Christmas. I don't remember if we've done anything else with her in it besides Black Christmas. But the synopsis of this is a little wild. It kind of like goes back and forth between like who's the main character, because at first you think it's this character, Samantha Sherwood, who's played by Samantha Egger. And it starts off with her and this director who she works directly with, but is also kind of like her mentor muse and maybe even past lover he's written this what's implied to be his perfect masterpiece movie called audra which is all about a mentally unstable woman so samantha gets herself checked into a mental health facility to like research research the role, role. Yeah. yeah basically do uh the whole joker himself twisted damaged Mr. Morbin time himself. Method acting, yeah. Method acting, yes. And uh, she gets left in the (laughs) mental health facility by the director, and the director decides he's going to do a casting call at his own house with five young actresses and and performers. It's not just actresses. One's a stand-up comedian, one's a dancer. He's going to basically do this weird, like, hey, come to my, like, Shining-esque cabin in the woods in the middle of Canadian winter, and you're all going to audition for me and like we're all gonna have this weird sleepover and i'm gonna pick the new audra meanwhile samantha gets out of the facility 
and unannounced goes to the house. In the background, there is a killer that is wearing an old woman, like old hag mask, going around <laughs> starting to killing off these women one by one. It looks more like Edgar Winter now, though. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a little bit of a minor spoil for curtains. There is a scene where a professional ice skater who's there auditioning goes out in the morning to like ice skate on the pond. And the killer, in the full mask and everything, starts <laughs> ice skating after her with, like, a sickle. In slow motion. That's the thing. This movie is a thousand percent committed to being a serious, bleak slasher. Like, yeah. let's look at the psychology of acting and this fictional character and how everyone is so obsessed with being this fictional person. But, like, then you have, like, this kind of shit happening. <laughs> yeah. It's just intense and ridiculous enough that it becomes fever dream quality. Yeah, it's a little giallo-ish. And so it's not entirely laughable yeah. because there's something just slightly disturbing about the whole thing. Yeah. It uh, felt a little bit like a giallo, surreal, dream logic kind of weird thing. I really enjoyed the ending. I really enjoyed the reveal of the slasher, actually. I don't know. This this is w another one of those underrated slashers. I think there's enough here that for us to even do a full episode on this one. To like get into even like the whole what were the two movies that they were trying to make and that they mashed together to make this sure kind of yeah. thing. But yeah, I don't know. It's unlike a lot of things you'll watch. I mean, it is similar to slashers for me because I've been watching like off kilter underrated slashers yeah. for the last couple months now. But like it still stood out. It's still one of those memorable ones with some of the others that I've watched. So uh, yeah, I had never even heard of this movie until he tweeted about it. So I appreciate the tweet and I appreciate this watch. Um, so yeah, check out 1983's Curtains, a Canadian slasher movie. Um, if you want something really off the beaten path, and kind of weird and surreal but yeah that's all i got awesome well i really only have one thing to bring up the reason why will become clear in a moment and weirdly enough this recommendation also kind of ties into the movie that we're discussing in a thematic way <laughs> so i watched ty west's second movie for this calendar year pearl Caring for your family during these times is admirable. But you only get one take at this life. If only they would just die. Pardon? Nothing. I know what I've done. Bad things. Terrible, awful, murderous things. I want to be loved from as many people as possible. But truth is, I'm not really a good person. And honestly, kind of had a fucking blast with it. Thank you, because, like, okay, um, listeners, like, You were Aaron, giving me shit about, like, oh, you don't like Ty West, everybody likes Ty West. You haven't seen any of these movies, hush. Aaron doesn't get Ty West, and everyone on film Twitter is praising Ty West left and right, and I want us to do a Ty West movie despite Aaron. And you know what? Outside of hardcore horror Twitter... 
And even then, like, only the portion of people who do like him, nobody was talking about Ty West before this year. Let's be real. You know, I appreciate and respect the guy's work. It's just not necessarily been my speed. Um, and I think the reason why, and this is going to sound kind of contradictory given the nature of Pearl, I think what finally clicked with me about his stuff that's just not really fully gelled before is where I always leave his movies wanting more. The movies promise so much. The movies have very interesting, intriguing premises, but then they just stop at the premise. And I think that's where I get frustrated is because I want more out of them. Oh, you are going to babysit at a house with these creepy people, maybe Satanists, dot, dot, dot. Okay, that's a good setup. But the movie just kind of stops there. Same thing like, oh, is there a ghost in this historically haunted hotel? Maybe, maybe not. And that's kind of it too. The plot stops there. So I don't know, like that's been the hang up with me with so many of his movies is that I'm just expecting more. And I think that was my biggest hang up with X ultimately was... I was really, for all the hype and the marketing around that movie and how it positions itself, I was expecting something way more extreme. I was expecting something way more deep into the line of a Rob Zombie movie level intense. And that movie is honestly really tame. For a movie that is about an amateur porn shoot, there's almost no sex and nudity in the movie. There's certainly nothing explicit in the movie. And for a slasher, there's not really a whole lot of gore, necessarily. And it just, I don't know, it never got trashy and grindhousey in the way that I was really expecting a movie to that was marketing itself as, hey, this is what you should come and expect. So I think that's been my biggest hangup is just the movies kind of stop at the premise and don't get any deeper than that. And a lot of them are kind of slow, which that was one of the things that I did say positively about X is I think at the time, at least X was easily his best made movie. It was the best paced. I think it was the most interesting story wise and character wise. That is until this movie. I honestly really dug Pearl. And I think a lot of it is I really love and appreciate the hyper technicolor 1950s Circian yeah. melodrama kind of thing. And this movie is 100% playing on that. I have only seen the preview and still shots from this movie, but the coloring, especially the reds in this movie, oh, yeah. are beautiful. Yeah, it looks love it. like Wizard of Oz. It has that insane. Yeah. candy color pop to the entire thing the production design of this movie is pretty incredible the costuming's great the makeup's great the pitch of the movie overall is really fucking hilarious like i will say for the horror stuff in it that really is truly disturbing because you are watching an absolute dangerous fucking sociopath narcissist through the entire movie <laughs> i'm not spoiling anything because this is in the preview it's implied she fucks a scarecrow in the movie so like yeah i yeah. mean this is 100 birth of a serial killer kind of movie it is very much just all about this girl who is stuck on this farm with her family in a small town in a small life and she clearly just resents 
every aspect of that. And she has it in her head that she is meant for bigger things and she, you know, is important and she is talented and she is special. It's a lot of the same horseshit that you hear from a lot of other serial killers. That they were meant to do more and society was just always out to get them and everybody was out to do them wrong and, you know, it was everybody else that was the problem. It was never their own fucking actions, right? And this movie is very much that whole thing. Mia Goth is fucking awesome in this movie. Yeah, she looks like she's having a blast in this movie too. And I didn't realize this, she apparently co-wrote the movie with Ty West. Yes, this is very much a project that the two of them did together, which it should be obvious. I mean, it's it's all kind of part of the marketing. This is a weird sequel to X. Or prequel? Or Yes, yes, it is a prequel, I guess. They came up with this whole story while they were filming X, and then it just became like a, fuck it, like, can we just get some more money and just make this while we're here? And now they're turning it into a, a trilogy. <laughs> yes, with uh, Maxine, which is going to continue the story of Mia Goth's character from the first movie. Without spoiling, well, I'm just going to fucking say it at this point. People have had plenty of time to watch X, and it's literally in all the fucking marketing for Pearl. Pearl is about the other character, and I guess I'll just leave it there, that Mia Goth plays an X, because she plays yeah. multiple characters in that movie. So this is kind of showing the origins of that character. I will say not all of it entirely tracks in my opinion, with where that character is in X, necessarily. There are definitely some elements that they do not explore in Pearl, but I think the way that they have shaped that character for this movie works so fucking well, and it's so disturbing watching her bring this character to life. There is a moment toward the end of this movie that is pretty fucking audacious. Not because it's shocking or explicit. It's audacious in the sense that they said, we're doing this thing, and they pulled it off. And it's pretty fucking amazing. The filmmaking in this movie, I think, is just kind of a whole nother level compared to his other stuff. It is genuinely funny in a way that I have not necessarily found his other movies entirely funny. The humor in his movies, like, doesn't always quite land for me, but this movie was the right level of parodying the melodrama kind of bullshit from the 40s and 50s, but in a way that seems very Tim and Eric surreal. And I really dug that aspect of it. Not trying to be a smartass here, but the end credits is maybe the best part of the movie that's again i'm not being a smart ass when i say that there is something yeah. that happens over the end credits that is genuinely fucking hilarious i think just kind of hearing from this and this kind of goes back to like what i've mentioned in curtains the idea of an actress muse for a director i think in a way mia goss handling of this character is like inspiration for ty west to like elevate his movies to release this movie pearl to the next level in a way that maybe not even x or any of his other past films did just from the marketing alone and like how much you can tell Mia Goth is into this role, it really feels like her thumbprints are all over this. Not to take anything away from Ty West, but I think her influence really seems to elevate it from what I'm hearing. I don't know. What do you think? I, it's definitely that. I mean, there is a lot of Mia Goth bringing herself and her influences into this and maybe that's what's making the difference for me but you know I, I don't know like I, I really really dug this one I didn't find it to be as distracting in a frustrating way as I did X X just had too many moments of I see what you're doing why that's not that clever 
why are we doing this? There is, like, I, I see what's going on here. What is the purpose of this? There were too many gimmicky things in the movie that I just didn't quite get, you know, what is he going for? And I still don't quite understand why, other than just why not. I, and I guess that's all it boils down to is, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we actually did XYZ like this? Yeah. That's the stuff that, maybe that's all there is to it. And I'm just maybe overthinking it and overcomplicating it or expecting more from it. But for how I started this whole spiel, that's what I kind of like about this movie is this movie is exactly what it's saying it is going to be and nothing more. And it's perfect for that. There's nothing much deeper to this movie. There is no other twist. It is just this straightforward story of a girl who is fully blossoming into a serial killer. Well, you're using the term blossoming, I think, on purpose, because the other thing, and this is just kind of, again, what I would thought watching the trailers. I'm guessing it's also that thing you, we always hear about with serial killers when they're first becoming the way they are, where the wires get crossed with sexuality and violence. Yes, very much. Um, so I'm guessing there is that dark sexuality aspect of it, too, which, again, I'm sure is ripe for critiquing like that old Wizard of Oz, old timey America, like isn't everything grand, white picket fences kind of thing. Yeah, that's a lot of what's going on there too that's so funny. Interestingly enough, I mean, the time period kind of fits perfectly because it is set during World War One. It is set during the like cholera epidemic oh i didn't realize it was that far back i thought yes. it was like 1920s 30s okay yeah it's that far back so it's very much at that point in america where there was still a lot of weird i don't know where i'm going with this i might trim around some of that thought but yeah it, it definitely happens much earlier earlier and that's been kind of funny like reading certain reviews because you can tell either who didn't watch the movie or who wasn't paying attention because people are like oh it's set in the 1940s no it's fucking not it's set during the 19 teens it's set during war one like what the fuck how did you miss that but it's at least an interesting time period that takes advantage of the world in which they were filming this movie Another time in America where people were wearing masks to stop an airborne sickness from spreading further. Another time where, you know, we kind of had background conflicts going across the world. Another time period where, you know, people weren't feeling safe in their own neighborhoods around their own communities. It's an interesting time period to set the movie in, but it, it happened. And for this girl at this point in time who, again, feels like she is so missing out on life and all these other things, when really a lot of it is just... Again, she's a narcissist. And that's what's super interesting yeah. about it at the end of the day. Nobody has really fucked her over massively. And that's what's interesting, too, is there is a moment where she's going through all these things that people have done to her and all these wrongs that have happened. And so much of it, when she finally gets deep down into it, is just like, man, you made bad decisions. You haven't been able to, like, hold your shit together. And for as much frustrating societal stuff as you're having to deal with, at the same time, like, so much of this is also your fault. 
I, I don't know. It, it's very interesting. It's very interesting in that way that on one hand, we have to say like, ugh, the serial killer had like a really bad abuse of growing up and maybe that stuff played into all this. But at the same time, that person also made conscious decisions that led them down this path. You know, like it's a gray area. There's no right. There's no wrong to it. It's both and it's neither, you know? So I don't know. I thought this movie was incredibly fun. It's very well made. Mia Goth is incredible in it. I could definitely see myself going back and watching this again, where, again, something like X honestly just kind of left me wanting more and expecting more right. for what the premise offers. And I think this movie perfectly delivers on its very simple, like, this is all it is kind of premise. So I felt like I got what I came for, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes more sense. And honestly, because, again, I do want to reiterate, I do want us to start doing Ty West movies. But even if I don't like X and makes me want want to watch x so i can then also go into pearl to fully appreciate it you know all kidding aside the stuff that you described x when you talked about it on a past episode i feel like i would agree with you um on if i watched it myself but you know who knows maybe my opinion would be different when i watch it uh, myself but just from like all the marketing and everything i've seen between the two movies pearl looks way more like my shit than x did and i'm glad that it's like being universally praised by pretty much anybody who has a good opinion on movies that I agree with. So I am excited to eventually watch it myself. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's worth checking out. Obviously, you need to watch X first. I would definitely not recommend watch this movie and then X simply because it's a prequel. No, watch them in the order that they were released and it will make sense. And honestly, I think there's a greater impact with Pearl and how you're reacting to it if you have seen X as far as knowing where that character ends up ultimately. So I, I would definitely recommend... Cool. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and jump over into our movie. We are deep into Season of Spoop this year, and like we mentioned up top, we are discussing movies that center around cursed objects, because that is always a fun, weird, goofy trope to get into, and honestly, like, we kind of picked some good movies for this month, we think, so the second movie that we are discussing, to shake things up a bit, is Ring from 1998. This is the first theatrical adaptation of Koji Suzuki's book ring from 1991 this movie is directed by Hideo Nakata and it's super interesting so let's roll some of that beautiful trailer footage
Awesome. Cool. So, Derek, I think it goes without saying, we've both seen the American remake of this movie, but have you ever seen this version of it before? So, I have to talk a bit about this franchise specifically. In a lot of ways, what got me interested in horror, at least briefly when I was in middle school, was the American remake of this movie. I'm going to try not to compare the Japanese original ring to the American remake too much in this episode because we will definitely cover the American remake at some point because I I think it is one of the best, if not my favorite, of that whole round of movies that came out in the early aughts and mid-aughts of J and K horror remakes. I'm glad you specifically mention this because i forgot to mention it right up top but yeah we're gonna like probably talk around the edges of the american remake we are not gonna focus on comparing and contrasting the two we're not going off into the deep end with that because we're gonna have a whole episode on that eventually it is one of the rare remakes that completely warrants having its own episode so we will discuss that at a later point but as far as yeah you discussing like your background and context of this movie where you at I think I was in like seventh or eighth grade when the ring, the American remake dropped immediately like right off the bat. Everyone was talking about this being like the scariest movie they'd ever seen. The closet scene being one of the best jump scares. Kids in my class having nightmares and not being able to sleep after watching it. Yep. And actually at a sleepover because I, I didn't catch it in theaters when it was out, but at a sleepover. And this was a big blockbuster movie. Like, I remember at my local blockbuster, when this movie first dropped on VHS and DVD, because this was also at the advent of DVD, there was like a whole back wall of just The Ring, the remake, and the actual original Japanese Ringu or Ring. Um, It was called Ringu on a release they had at the blockbuster. And there was even like advertisements like, you've seen The Ring, now see the movie it's based off of. But I remember at a a sleepover, we watched The Ring, and it fucking like burned a hole in my brain, like scared the fucking shit out of me. But it made me really fascinated in horror. And honestly, I I tried thinking back, because like, you know, I've had an interest in horror for a long time. I've watched horror movies growing up that I probably shouldn't have seen. I always was interested in it. I always loved the idea of ghost stories and like... Like, even if I don't necessarily believe ghosts are real, I love hearing about, quote unquote, real life hauntings. And that was always true through as a kid. But like it actually extending in fictional media didn't really awaken in me until I saw the American remake, The Ring. From there, that's where I started devouring all the horror video games. I started PS2 era and being able to play PS1 horror on the PS2. All of that really shaped my love of horror. I would not be a fan of the Fatal Frame series if it weren't for The Ring and Ring. I remember for a while because I, I loved the ring after that sleepover I went to another sleepover at another friend's house showed him and his older sister the ring and we watched it because they were one of the first people I knew with a, a DVD player we rented it from our local blockbuster we watched it and there was actually a, a hidden special feature on that DVD where like yep. if you took the cursor all the way down the menu it would disappear and then if you clicked play without the cursor it'd play the whole ring video and then a phone would ring and they had surround sound and the phone rang and we all jumped out of the couch speaker, yeah because it sounded exactly like their phone. We almost pissed ourselves. Um, And then from there, I was like, I have to watch Ring, the Japanese original. And I remember watching it as like a 14, 15 year old because I loved the Ring so much. I don't know if I appreciated it back then as much as I do now. I remember liking it as a kid, but I remember it being like, oh, it's a little slow compared to the American remake, blah, blah, blah. But I was, you know, I was 14, 15 year old. This movie to me is superior. I do 
think this is a better movie than the American remake. Not to take nothing away from the American remake, because I do like the American remake. I think this movie is a lot more nuanced. I think it is quieter, but I also think it's far more dread and creep inducing. And I think the best ghost story movies, ghost story movies are hard for me because I hate jump scares or at least unearned jump scares so much. And this was the perfect level of creep factor and earned jump scares. And a lot of the even the jump scares were kind of reserved and way more creepy than like flash at your face. Horrifying gets a lot of stuff like a reflection of something in the background that's not there. And that kind of supernatural horror, just the whole premise of it. Like we talked about in the last episode with Christine curses, they've been around since human antiquity. Like they aren't a new thing in every culture In every culture. But the idea of bringing it almost to like an urban legend level modern era where like it's on a videotape vhs and back in 98 and 91 when the novel was written you know that is such a novel idea and the idea that if you consume this thing this thing that's usually a tool for media consumption you will be killed by it or killed by whatever's haunting it within days that whole premise is so simple and we take it for granted now and there's so many movies now that riff on this premise i mean even it follows the idea of this inescapable curse and the only way to break it is by making it grow it's just so fascinating to me um this movie ran so so many other movies could fly i feel like there's something about j-horror and k-horror for that matter but especially j-horror that just really rings with me new asian horror is just kind of the like pan everything term that i have heard over the years and that's kind of the easiest way to kind of encapsulate everything because yeah this movie definitely kicked off that entire trend as far as those movies being imported to the u.s yes being heavily remade during that entire era yeah because like i don't think if the ring was successful as an american remake we wouldn't have had the grudge we wouldn't have the dark water remake we wouldn't have had all these j horror remakes that happen and even other asian horror remakes yeah and i don't think we would have such a boom going on in malaysia and taiwan and the philippines and all these other southeast asian areas right now had all of these movies not really hit and stuck the way that they did This movie specifically introduced a whole different palette and a whole different pacing and a whole different world of horror ideas that were kind of beyond just the Western notions of ghosts and hauntings and possessions and curses and everything else. It just opened up like a whole new doorway of fascination, like you were saying, to a lot of people, tons and tons of people our age. Same exact situation as you. I mean, this is one of the few times I guess we're like... We came to this movie in exactly the same way. I saw The Ring, the American remake, and it kind of blew my fucking pants off. Yeah. Pretty much right after that, our local movie store got in The Ring, Ringu, and the whole deal was like, wait, what is this? Oh, this is a Japanese version that is supposedly the original version of this? What the fuck? Didn't know that the American one was even a remake, right? I don't even remember how I learned that it was a remake because I don't remember the marketing, at least on TV, or maybe I was just too young to really appreciate it, like made mention that it was a remake, and I'm sure it did, I just didn't notice it like in commercials and stuff, but it might have been my local blockbuster that 
that made me realize it was a remake by seeing like that whole wall of the ring and then next to it Ringu. I don't know if nationally this was the highest or the ring remake at least was the highest rented for a little while but I feel like at my local blockbuster was definitely the highest rented movie for a long time at least for like several months after it came out on DVD and VHS. Yeah and I remember too interestingly enough just this movie starts where you have these teenagers quietly whispering about oh did you hear about this thing you know have you seen this video do you know about this whole crazy thing that's kind of exactly what happened with this movie in relationship to the ring was just a lot of people being like yo have you seen the original version of the ring it's fucked up just the whole like weird are you in the know kind of club around that have you actually seen that version of it i remember that version was almost just as popular as the american one growing up so yeah i mean this movie has always kind of been one of those fascinating objects where it works so incredibly well and it's such a good in my opinion after seeing and going through all these things it's such a good adaptation of this story i find where it simplifies things to be much cleaner much more straightforward and ultimately more effective i think which i'll I'll dig into that a little bit more in a minute yeah because i read the synopsis for the novel and it is a little more i don't know i there's something about the movie that like makes it more simple yeah it's a little more sci-fi than anything yeah it's more sci-fi it's more of a medical mystery procedural thing which i would have been down with for this movie too but i I do like how this movie more leans into the supernatural and really simplifies it it does you know, I like I said, I'll get into all that in a minute, but I very much appreciate how this movie adapts the source material. And ultimately, I don't know, there's just still like something so unnerving in a slow creep kind of way that does work for me. That's the best thing I can describe. This movie is creepy. This is a really creepy boomy and horror newbies. Again, I think why this works so well for me specifically, personally, there are jump scares in this movie. There are jump scares involving ghosts or dead bodies a few times in this movie. And the American remake really capitalized on this. But like here in the, in this original, the dead bodies doesn't look like they died comfortable. Let's just leave it at that. But the jump scares are, again, not utter terrifying, like demonic face kind of jump scares. It is more very just kind of haunted. Again, shit in the background, reflection of something that or someone that isn't there. Haunting noises, like the actual noise that they use in the tape in this movie sounds like a child chalkboard someone's scratching it yeah like violin strings like out of tune i would say this is kind of an intermediate horror movie i, I would say that i think horror movies could handle it but you may want to like toughen your skin a little bit because i think this one this one's pretty damn creepy yeah this movie never is explicit that's kind of the wild thing about it is yeah there is nothing gory about this movie there is nothing explicit about this movie but there is a creeping nightmarish dread to this that will certainly kind of get under your skin as you are laying in bed staring at the ceiling with all the lights off you know it's it's definitely that kind of thing and the ghost design is memorable and terrifying like yeah i don't remember which guest it was aaron you might remember this and i think it might have been vp morris but it was v uh yeah 
she described how women ghosts are naturally more scary to her. And I would take that a step further. For some reason, the J-horror aesthetic of ghosts scares the fuck out of me more than most traditional kind of Western ideas of what a ghost is. Yeah. We won't get into who ghost is yet, but the villain of the Ring franchise, the ghost that is haunting the cursed VHS tape, their design is genuinely very unsettling. Their movement is unsettling. And just what they do to people who fall victim of the curse is extremely like unsettling. Just yeah, I, this is almost one of my favorite, if not my favorite ghost story movies or ghost stories in any media period. I just think so much of this idea and premise is simple, but works so well. I think part of why it works so well is kind of getting into the themes and fears that this movie really tackles. There's a weird blend, or not even a weird, a very purposeful but creepy blend of old traditional folklore, specifically Japanese folklore, going back to yokai and evil spirits, mixed with modernization, with the idea of a TV and VHS player and everything else. Well, the idea of it not just being you know, a cursed sword, a cursed dress, a cursed statue, but it being a fucking VHS tape, right? Yeah. The entire idea that it's this weird chunk of plastic with tape that has to be electromagnetically read by another machine and played to a different machine. All these weird pieces and parts you have to have to decipher this mystery. It's very much like old legends where, you know, you had to get a scroll and then you had to like point it at the sun at just the right time of day to read it. And it would tell you where this cave was. It's the same bullshit. It's just modern day technology where, you know, oh yeah, by the way, it's just, it's a VHS tape. Yeah. I think what really cements the idea of also it being steeped in folklore is the design of the ghosts in this movie is not new. It's been around in Japanese folklore and supernatural tales for a while. And some of the stuff that I was looking up that really influenced this movie and stop me, Aaron, if you research any of this yourself, there was a play called Yotsuya Keidan, and it is a Japanese horror kabuki play yeah. all about ghostly revenge. And uh, there's even an old school portrait from this kabuki play of a ghostly woman with long black hair wearing white. There's a good 60s movie called Kwaidan that is an anthology of Japanese ghost stories that's really fucking good that you should check out sometime, by the way. But uh, it's, yeah. it's very much based on this play and the other kinds of stories that that play is adapting. And then taking a step further, and this is other stuff that I had looked up before previously, like, again, with my fandom of Fatal Frame. In Japanese mythology and folklore, there is the model of a ghost. It is called a yurei, meaning faint or dim solar spirit. That is kind of your idea of whenever you think of Japanese horror, when you see a ghost tied into the villain's design in this movie. But specifically, when someone dies in a tragedy, whether it's a murder or some extreme cause of death that involves a lot of hatred, the spirit can come back as a vengeful spirit called an onryo. That is what the spirit is in this movie specifically. And they are actually depicted as being able to kill people and exact revenge and cause tragedy. And it is said that they can spread curses. They seek out those who have done them wrong to basically punish them. It's also one of those things, too, where they are different from a standard ghost or spirit because they can actually become physically manifest. 
yeah. in our world and physically interact with people. You know, it's not just a spirit vapor ghost kind of thing. It's almost like the idea of a ghost versus a violent poltergeist in Western lore yeah. or even like a demon. They're they're kind of demonic. Uh, there's also a variation of it called a Goryeo, which is a vengeful Japanese ghost from the aristocratic class. And I was reading that a lot of those ghosts, the origins for them are martyrdom. Um, of the aristocrats. So it takes those old ideas and kind of brings them into this modern urban legend. And at the time of the 90s, it's fascinating to see Japanese culture and Western culture bouncing off each other. Because at the time of the 90s, really, there was a lot of urban legend. I mean, we fucking had an urban legend one and two movies around like the 90s. And the whole beginning of this movie, like you said, Aaron, these two students being like, oh, did you hear like so-and-so at this school or in this class died when they watched this videotape yeah that was a lot of the same shit we were saying like spreading like local urban legends and stuff yep. and i just i like that the story updates it to at least modern for the late 90s and involving this japanese spirit or yokai or whatever this is one thing that and lis- listeners anyone who is more educated than i am on this matter please reach out this was the thing i was having kind of a hard time i'm not sure if these spirits are considered yokai or vice versa i don't know if yokai or specifically demons and these are more spirits so i don't know if they are classified as yokai or not but my very crude western i did a little bit of research understanding that i'm probably not correct about is a lot of this is rooted in shintoism you know there's different ranges of that good evil but that's my understanding is that they're just kind of all spirits and they just kind of branch off taxonomy wise from there yeah also too another quick thing that i had briefly read about that led to the influence of this is yet another japanese ghost story called bancho sariyashiki I, I don't know. I'm not looking at the word. Bencho Saryashiki. Yes. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not looking at the word. Again, I am so terrible at pronunciation. I apologize. But again, it was it's a Japanese ghost story about the betrayal of trust and promises, someone dying unjustly and coming back to haunt the living. If you go on the Wikipedia page actually for this story, there's even a print of a woman coming out of a well, almost like a snake, and her hair is like making the snake body, and it's like long black hair. Yeah, I believe I've heard heard of this one specifically and it does have a lot of little thematic echoes with the ring yeah specifically around the idea of a well and a murder or a death happening around a well so those are kind of influences i i had seen i don't know if there were any others that you saw aaron but those were the influences that kind of led into this story and kind of variation of a lot of those folklores and spirits like i said i i did a little bit of research on this but didn't heavily heavily dig into it i know like as far as this movie itself is concerned concerned shizuko yamamura and sadako were both kind of based on real life people there was a woman named chizuko mifune i looked her up too yep yeah supposedly had psychic powers after this failed public demonstration in 1910 she was declared a fraud and a year later she committed suicide via poisoning it's very weird this was something i had no knowledge of going into this until i i was looking up stuff now there was another student who was with this professor named fukurai tomikichi that supposedly also had powers and it was never really proven with either of them sadako's name actually comes from one of his assistants at this lab facility school whatever we want to call it 
supposedly there was a later student named Nagao Ikuko who did demonstrate psychic abilities. These specific abilities that we're talking about, again, very interesting because it's not your usual psychic, I can get in your mind, telepathy kind of powers. And it's not your usual horror movie telekinesis, I can throw shit around the room kind of psychic powers. This is specifically called Ninsha which is a type of psychic photography in which her thoughts and memories actually travel and kind of emanate from her as electromagnetic signals. And they kind of then burn themselves into people's minds. The electromagnetic waves burn themselves onto videotapes, which that's kind of the source of the cursed videotape we find out in this movie. You know, they can even broadcast thoughts and memories directly onto television screens. Because again, it's just all electromagnetic waves it's like sending stuff out via wi-fi essentially so that's like such an interesting twist that i don't know that we really have like a distinct flavor of that in the western world that i've ever come across or read other than just technopathy i guess uh, which that's more like you have an affinity for talking to machines and controlling machines this is a different thing altogether you know so it's it's very interesting because it's very unique in that way well, and there are like, I think even legit theories about the idea of what actually is the human mind and consciousness and everything that our brains are actually kind of like Wi-Fi antennas. And we're basically beaming into this outside idea of the subconscious or whatever. And I think some of that is kind of what this movie touches on with that idea. You took it a lot further than I did. I was just like, uh, she scares people to death, literally. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> like, kind of the interesting thing is people that are near her or around her suddenly have their brains filled with her memories and her pain and her with experiences hate. with hate. Yeah. <laughs> People can't sleep at night because they keep dreaming, you know, like her thoughts and memories, like again, are, are literally burned onto this VHS tape. And the whole deal, like I mentioned was people are playing back the tape and it seems to be this weird collage of nonsense imagery and snippets of things that you're not sure what you're looking at. What they deduce in the movie is, and you know, I, I'm not sure if they actually specifically mention it in this movie, but I believe they do, that there are some dropped images, there are some black spots in the film where they suddenly realize, wait, we are seeing her point of view. This tape is all her point of view this is all what yeah. she saw and we're literally watching her blink you know these black spots where it drops out for a frame or two are literally her eyes blinking so you know just that whole idea of being able to see somebody's experiences actually through their eyes is very intriguing and interesting but on a weird lo-fi almost snuff tape kind of thing is also that next step of oh god what the fuck am i looking at kind of thing well yeah and you already have that very unsettling tape because yeah it's all these weird images and things that are nonsensical but it's all creepy as fuck and then when they are like, delving deeper into like what's actually on the tape the way they reveal that oh shit this is from her perspective 
is you see her reflection in the mirror of her mom brushing her hair. And it's the same type of reflection that the main character sees right after she watches the tape in like the reflection of her own TV when like she is now cursed and is starting to experience these things. Just that idea, like when you come to that realization, like, yeah, this is her own eyes. Yeah, that's very unsettling. And that's a very interesting way to curse people. But uh, yeah, I had, it kind of was just one of those things like, yeah, I get it. I understood. But when I really I hadn't really sat down to think about it until you just mentioned. Yeah, she's basically kind of killing them by just overloading their senses with her own hatred of everything and all this shit that happened to her and her parent her mom and the other thing that this movie touches on that i thought was fascinating it doesn't really go deep into this but i think it confirms it i guess later in later movies or in the novel it kind of goes this way it's implied that she isn't necessarily fully human either that the doctor who is testing isn't actually her father and that her mom would spend hours staring at the sea talking to somebody who wasn't there a really good performance by the way by that older gentleman his whole description of like yeah and when i like got closer to see or hear who she's talking to or what she's saying and it was no language i recognized like it was just this unearthly language and i remember reading like again i don't know if this is explored in later movies or in the novel more that it was actually a sea demon like a japanese sea demon that is potentially the father and that's what led to her having these supernatural powers and her since her mom was already kind of gifted with these abilities that like maybe that's what attracted this otherworldly force that sounds a little more like it could dip into like maybe not necessarily sci-fi horror but like hb lovecraftian kind of unknowable horror sure. but i don't know did they talk about that at all and like any other media of this so i i guess we're deep enough into this at this point we can kind of discuss it ultimately the like on the surface explanation is she is the child of shizuko yamamura and dr hayachiro ikuma who was the doctor that was conducting all the psychic experiments on yeah them, right supposedly he impregnated her she gave birth to sadako there we go you know there is all this talk about shizuko gaining her psychic powers after finding a statue of this ancient sea god you know from the ocean and then that passed to Sadako but that's also kind of one of the weird things is in the later works it then kind of implies that oops by the way her father might actually have just been the CD I mean you hit the nail on the head yeah. but it's one of those things where it doesn't really fully come down on it one way or another okay it's only speculated it might just be one of those weird misogyny things it might just be this doctor Dr. Akuma just not wanting to accept the fact that the daughter that he sired yeah. Yeah. on this woman who was under his care came out kind of fucked up it's just him denying any wrongdoing on his part and overstepping his power and having to take responsibility of the fact that not only did you do that and you ruined this woman in that way but now you have a child born out of that who is not all there right and so you know it's, it's just one of those things where like i can't tell if there is anything more supernatural going on or if it's just this guy kind of shifting the whole thing off onto like bullshit ancient evil and just i'm being you know misogynist i guess 
Yeah, and I remember reading somewhere that the novels don't really bring up like a sea demon or a sea god, but the films kind of more lean into that. And I do like that this movie really is a lot more open-ended about it of just, oh, she would stare out at the ocean and that was about it. It didn't really like lean into one way or the other. And I would prefer it to remain that way. I would rather it, I, I would rather it just be like, she is bored of these two people. Her mother had powers and her father was just kind of an ass and she is basically Carrie. <laughs> yeah. This is all the violence and tragedy of this poor little girl's short life has turned into this vengeful spirit that is going to take it out on anything it crosses her path. And that's like an idea that we even talked about a bit uh, way back on her like autopsy of Jane Doe. The idea of this person was fucked. What happens to them is unfair. And not only do they get their revenge, but they are going to take out that vengeance on no matter. It doesn't matter who's in their way. Then the violence is just only going to spread from there. And I think that's way more terrifying to me than like, oh, they're part quasi sea demon, spiritual entity that is a demon that is sent here to punish humanity like that. That doesn't interest me at all. I like the idea more of, of vengeance and hatred that is burning so much that it becomes a vengeful spirit that just her only motivation now is to spread the curse and kill as many people as she can who watch the tape in this case. Yeah. Other little aspects to so the title of the Americanized transliterated version, Ringu, right, technically does not mean ring as in an object, right? Like it doesn't refer to the halo of light that we see over the well. It doesn't refer to any kind of patterns necessarily. The Japanese word, it is a word for the verb cyclical re occurrence like a curse yeah a cycle it is not necessarily a word for like an object per se and that's something that kind of got lost in translation a little bit because the entire rest of this franchise is really focused around events reoccurring events mirroring at future dates events looping back on themselves it's very much about a cycle and things perpetuating not this weird symbol necessarily i guess if that makes sense you know how like you're sure you saw something or you have a memory when you're younger that like this is the way it was but you're not sure if it was real or not so let me back up i think part of where that loss in translation also happens which is this is where i i do think this movie is better the american remake i think really leans more heavily into the actual idea of a ring as a symbol yes than this movie like this movie is much more about like you said the cycle of the curse itself which is a lot more existential and more interesting to me than just the idea of the ring being this creepy image but do you remember was there like a commercial or an advertisement for the american ring where samara or a little girl whispers before you die you see the ring yes that was definitely part of the marketing and that might even i don't know that that was in the movie it's been a while since i've seen the movie. it wasn't i don't think that quote actually was in the movie because yeah. the only words you ever hear from samara besides that interview is seven days when they pick up the phone yeah that change i did like for the american remake to kind of set it apart was like you get the phone call and you hear seven days but i do like in this movie that it almost seems like 
she fucks with them kind of because like some people seem to get a phone call or the phone call comes later and they miss it when you answer it there's no one there it's just the noise from the tape and that's so much more haunting to me than the seven days because at least with the seven days you know you're cursed whereas i feel like in this movie and this kind of lends into like the beginning of the movie with the two girls and a lot of the teenage characters you see throughout the movie like all on the outskirts of this and people from other schools dying is no one's quite sure if is this all a prank or like does someone just always know when you watch a tape because like there's no one on the other line it sounds like when they do get a phone call and sometimes a phone call doesn't even come and that's more terrifying because you're not given a timetable sounds like the urban legend just developed from people dying off in seven days and uh that's how they they kind of find out how the mechanics of the curse work so i do enjoy that little tidbit in this original more but i also do like the seven days and the american remake that kind of sets it apart as its own thing and i i mean Anyone from our generation, Aaron, I'm pretty sure you could say seven days in a creepy whisper and they would kind of understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. So let's go ahead and talk through like the actual background and production of this movie. And then we'll kind of get into the ridiculousness of this franchise as a whole. Uh, Because boy, oh boy, this was a fucking wild spiral rabbit hole well Lol. to fall down <laughs> so anyway yeah. yeah like i mentioned this was directed by hideo nakata this was based on koji suzuki's book ring which came out in 1991 so this story is adapting the first book in that series the main inspiration for that story was his favorite horror film poltergeist Oh, okay. And we, yeah, he's a Toby Hooper fan, huh? Yeah. By the way, I was looking up Nakata and he also, I didn't know this, he also directed Dark Water 2002. That is another one of his movies. And that's also regarded as one of the best supernatural modern Japanese horror movies, a movie we will probably do at some point on this show. And it is also based on a short story by this same author, Koji Suzuki. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Wow. And I I saw he did Ring 2, but have you watched anything else that this guy has done so nakata i have seen dark water i have definitely seen both ringu 2 and the ring 2 because again like you just said he directed the american american sequel. sequel i did see the ring 2 as well that's the only other one that i had watched the only other movies of his that i've seen i've seen life and overtime and i've seen chaos and that's all that i recognize looking through all of his stuff so yeah, I've, I have seen some of his other stuff. The other movies are not necessarily, they're more thrillers than anything, but yeah, Dark Water is legitimately good. That is certainly one that we should check out later. I was reading up that he did a 2015 horror movie called Ghost Theater, and then he did another Ring franchise 2019 movie called Sadako, the titular character. Yes, that is a follow-up movie that he just recently made that I believe is carrying on his stuff. That is I, I watched a lot of Ring movies that we will discuss, but I did not watch that one. Oh, he also did a 2013 horror movie called The Complex. Yes, and I have not seen it. I guess while we're on the topic of like the creators, the writer Hiroshi Takahashi, who adapted Ring into the screenplay, he also wrote the screenplays for Ringu 2, Ringu Zero, hmm. and then a movie called The Serpent's Path and The Revenge, both of which are pretty fucking rad. He also did the Netflix show, and I don't, I say Netflix, I don't know if it is original for Netflix or if it was something that Netflix picked up, but he did Juon Origins, which 
was pretty fucking good. That's a more recent series that came on that is a continuation of the Grudge series. So he's worked in both the Ring and the Grudge yep. franchises. Okay. Yep. Those other movies definitely worth checking out. I would recommend. But yeah, anyway, Ring was actually first adapted as a movie for Japanese TV in 1995 yeah i saw that and they then released it on home video as ring kanzenban which just means complete edition so i had no idea about that until doing some research for this all i was aware of was okay cool ringu is the japanese original version i had no fucking clue there was a tv movie years before so the publisher of this book series wanted to pursue a theatrical adaptation nakata and takahashi came on board after they read the novel and saw the TV movie and they were like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's do this. So pretty easy. I mean, there was not a whole lot of controversy getting them on. I want to go back and watch the TV movie. I want to know like how it was. It's interesting and I'll, I'll get into that okay. a little bit more in yeah. a minute. Nakata and Takahashi changed a lot of elements of the original story. So right off the bat, a couple of major things. They gender swapped the protagonist and the child. In the original story, it is a male newspaper reporter who is investigating this entire story. He is married, his wife has a female child. And so they literally gender swapped all of those characters, changed the marital status to being divorced. Because in the original story, the ex-husband character is very much just, oh, this other weird guy that I know who is a professor who's into this weird shit, he will know what to do, dot, dot, dot. They helped cut down the characters, which is, I think, a smart move. A little bit. I mean, you're really just combining the ex-slash-actual-current-spouse character the Takayama character. That all got changed. They also omitted several key details of Sadako's backstory and origin. Let's just say it's a lot more lurid. Sadako is intersex in the original story. Okay. She is also sexually assaulted and given smallpox by her the assaulter, fuck? right? So there's a lot more that is just lurid and dark and fucked up about the original story. I am not 100% sure what the purpose was of making Sadako intersex other than just further other that character in kind of an icky way. But it certainly doesn't really play into the story in any particular rhyme or reason other than the person who was sexually assaulting her was further enraged discovering that secret and problematic yeah it's just further playing yeah. up that nasty trope that we've seen a lot in just media in general over the years especially in horror too of trans characters equal bad evil psychotic whatever yeah. right so there's a lot of stuff they did change about the story and honestly i don't really have any complaints about anything that they changed oh because uh -uh. everything else is very faithful to that original story for the most part there's just a lot of weird character details that we don't really need for the sake of this story. The two things that led to this that were two scenes I enjoyed for very different reasons. One, when she's having that flashback slash she's seeing what's happening in the past during like that psychic reading test in front of the journalists. Yeah. Sadako killing that journalist, doing the same thing that, oh, that's been killing off the people in the videotapes just right there off stage, which also led to a really creepy moment because then she runs up to the main character 
character and grabs her arm and she has like the burn mark on her arm. And I thought that was a great scene of just her psychically murdering that guy that one journalist who incited all this like, oh, this is fake, blah, blah, blah. And like terrorizing her mom. And then the second scene, which I enjoyed is almost it's not meant to be comedic whatsoever, but it made me laugh so hard. There's a scene where she's standing by the well and the doctor, her her father, at least her human father, kills her by like bludgeoning her in the back of the head and stuffing her down the well and then sealing the well. The sound effect when he hits her over the head, whatever yeah. sound effect that they ADR is PS1 1995 video game SFX crunch sound and it did kind of take me out of the movie for a second and made me laugh in a way that I'm sure was not supposed to happen because the scene is literally a father murdering his own daughter and stuffing her down a well but that sound effect did kill me for a second yeah really the footage on the curse video was shot on film. It was shot on 35. I was about to ask you that. And then yeah. they literally handed it off to a, an effects lab that digitally added video grain and effects and everything, which that's kind of wild. They didn't just find a shitty VHS camera yeah. and just add shitty VHS effects over it. You know, like even the video camera that my family had growing up that I shot a lot of like dumb backyard movies and stuff with that VHS tape camera. When and I say that, I mean like, like, it took a full-size VHS tape that you had to kachunk into the player, right? Right. Even it had a lot of rudimentary onboard effects. Like, you could invert colors, and you could put weird wah-wah-wah filters on things, and add static, and you could do black-and-white mode. Even the camera itself did a lot of weird rudimentary effects. So, like, I don't get the purpose of we shot on film and then post-processed it into digital and added the grain and everything else. It just seems like a weird roundabout way of doing it. Yeah, even though they took that extra step, because I feel like that would make it too clean, you know, like if they like almost did too much to it. But at least it still looks pretty good. Yeah. Oh, it still looks very interesting. Yeah. It still looks like it's a worn out VHS. Yeah. Budget of $1.2 most of which was put up by Nakata himself. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Total production time was only about nine months. Start to finish, nine months, which wow. is pretty fucking wild. The movie was released in January of 98. It was a huge hit at festivals. It became Japan's highest grossing horror movie ever with $13 million and even more on home video. Massive hit in Hong Kong. It was actually the most profitable Japanese release in that market until 2015. Wow. It even beat the fucking Matrix that year. Which is wild. I saw it also too, like more recently has popped up in best films of world cinema. Just foreign films and everything else. Like it, it yeah. pops up a lot of best hundred. Empire Magazine put out one uh, about a decade ago or so. And it, it was on the list and all that kind of stuff. You know, this movie internationally, it's one of those kind of understated classics yeah. in the horror genre. I, I feel like this should be in the pantheon of great horrors, but it's not as talked about, at least in America, it's not as talked about as, you know, slasher movies and other horror movies um, when it really uh, should be. I mean, you say that, but like, it's going to be on every top 100 list. It's going to be on every list of it should, best foreign yeah. horror. It's going to be on every list of best Asian horror. It's going to be on every list of best ghost haunting curse horror like i think its reputation is pretty solid i think the difference is the movie is just 
30 years old at this point. Well, like I see older horror films. I mean, granted, they are mostly from the 80s, 70s. So, you know, there's always those people that cry out that that's the heyday of horror movies. Yeah. It's just fascinating to me that other horror films are always constantly referenced, even films way older than this one. Yeah. This movie, as far even as ghost movies, like going back to Ty West, I've seen more about the innkeepers. Even before X and Pearl, I saw more about the innkeepers on film Twitter and everything else than I ever did about Ring, which is, you know, it's interesting. I, I think it just has to do with the fact that Ring is older yeah. at this point. Ring is just a much older movie compared to all of those. I mean, film Twitter is obviously its own weird little black yeah, it's a, hole. It's a microcosm of cinema. But. Yeah. Film Twitter is its own weird little bubble and mostly is going to be talking about whatever is hot at any given time, which is mostly just whatever is hot right now. But I, I don't know. Ring, even from the get-go, seemed to have done really, really well in those first few years before the American one hit. And then after that, really gained a huge following and reputation once more people saw it. So it's one of those rare examples of from the beginning, this movie was well-regarded, widely viewed, widely available as well. And there wasn't that weird period of, oh, this movie just kind of was lost in the dark for years until it was rediscovered or whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh, God, now everybody loves this movie. No, I mean, this everybody liked this movie from the beginning. I think it's just the fact that, again, this movie is over 20 years old at this point. Yeah. While we're still on the topic of this film specifically, because I know you're going to get into the rest of the franchise, just a couple quick other things I wanted to mention. The image that kind of stood out to me almost as much as the ghost was the towel-headed man. The guy just in the video pointing, wearing a towel. And then later on, I think it's implied that it's the ghost of her ex. Spoiler alert, he gets murdered. When she's just freaking out and being like, what did I do? to be spared that he didn't do what can I do to save my child and like the ghost is pointing at her bag at the videotape and it's implied that that's actually her ex that's now wearing the towel like the towel headed man and it was also implied earlier that what brought her son to watch videotape is her niece who dies at the beginning of the movie is the girl who gets killed the ghost telling him directing him to watch video like she's part of the curse now so i i took it as like anyone killed by this their ghost becomes part of the curse but i was also just wondering in that videotape and I, this is why i wanted to ask you because i think you might have the answer who is that guy supposed to be in the uh, with the towel over his head? is that supposed to be one of the people like helping out after the disaster after the eruption in the volcano who's that person supposed to be i'm not 100 percent sure i mean my impression was it's just the x character and obviously we don't realize what's exactly going on there until the very end of the movie because i mean there's still a few other things in the video that are kind of inextricable even in the other versions of this story that i saw there's a few images in the video that are not always 100 percent explained which i actually kind of like that yeah <laughs> i kind of like that some of it's still a mystery but yeah because every little thing for the most part gets explained in every other version of the movie so i i don't know i like that this one kind of has some mystery still yeah the one part in the video which i'm glad didn't translate over to the remake on the tape is all the kanji of the word eruption some of it's big some of it's small some of it's spinning and just that whole idea that's tied to the volcano where this region is where the mother committed suicide and but then the other thing too that i kind of thought about going back to comparisons with folklore and even with horror movies that we've done aaron where like it's more western takes on ghost stories be it the changeling or even we are still here even 
even though those ghosts are violent, they still spare the couple. And a lot of the ghosts between that and in the changeling are ghosts that are tied to tragedy and aren't necessarily like, at least not to the main characters, violent. Um, and yeah. they're almost more like either sympathetic or wanting the main characters to help solve their murder. Like the changeling, right? Like the changeling. How much of the stuff from the changeling ends up in some ways kind of crossing over into ring well and and the thing that makes ring more terrifying to me because the ghost in ring has you think when they've discovered her body in the well like that's put her spirit to rest and all that yeah but then you realize that the ghost does not care about that yeah that's not what it is the thing that's more terrifying about the ghost in ring and really the vengeful spirits in japanese folklore we hear about is murderous yeah there is no feeling even though yes they were born out of tragedy and violence they're not trying to solve their own murder they're not trying to yeah. like show sympathy there is no sympathy here this thing is basically a killing machine a supernatural force of nature and that is a lot more terrifying to me a vengeful spirit that just really isn't going to stop unless you feed its curse basically throw another innocent soul under the bus is not going to stop otherwise yeah and i, I think that idea i can't really think off the top of my head because like even the ghosts and like shakespeare and stuff are more like omens rather than a vengeful spirit that's trying to kill anyone um and even the idea of a poltergeist isn't necessarily harmful it's just a thing that's a nuisance in more western culture it seems like when there's something that is more violent and actually can harm people it's more demonic like there's a separation between spirit and demonic i like that whole view of the idea of a ghost can become evil based off of how they died and they can take out that rage on everything around them yeah cast for this movie before we move on nanako matsushima plays the main character reiko asakawa <laughs> she made me laugh because she's the one who's the investigative journalist investigating this cursed videotape legend and like reported deaths of these students first thing she does when she gets the tape is fucking watch it i need to watch it, it. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like, which i mean that's always been like the weird joke and like conundrum about this movie is god damn it if you are told this thing is cursed and fucked up and weird why would your immediate thought be like i need to check this out and then uh, oh by the way i need to show this to other people yes the second thing she does is immediately show her ex who is a psychic like it's shown he is a medium which i love the way they kind of hint at that where he's just sitting in that that open area park he sees those footsteps walk up to him and like he says something cryptic and then like doesn't look up when he finally does it's no longer there yeah and that's kind of how they reveal that he has like a sixth sense but i love that she's just like okay my ex father of my child uh let's show him the curse videotape now too and uh he'll know what to do yeah let's condemn both of ourselves to death <laughs> so yeah nanako matsushima she was also in a lot of japanese tv she shows back up for ringu too. She's in a movie called Whiteout, which I saw years back. It's kind of fucking rad. It's a bunch of Japanese terrorists taking over a dam. It's kind of a like diehard riff. She was in a TV adaptation, uh, like a live action adaptation of Grave of the Fireflies, where wow. she is the aunt to her nephew and niece taking care of them. So it's slightly different than the animated version that most people know. And she was in The Great Yokai War, colon, Guardians, which was directed by Takashi Miike from just a few years ago. I think just a few, like last year is when that one came out. Then we have... Oh, no, 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 let, let's back up. Let's stay on her for a second. You overlooked the most buckwild credit that I saw. She is in a 2010 Japanese remake of a 1990 American film, Ghost. That ghost? 
the Jerry Zucker ghost with Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore. Really? Whoopi Goldberg. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. It's called, uh, well, it's ghost and then followed by words I know I will mispronounce. And it is a 2010 remake of that same movie. That's wild. I did not pick that up. She is the star in it, too. She's, like, top build. Wow, that's yeah. that's fucking bananas. Now I'm very curious. What does the pottery scene look like? <laughs> Who is the Japanese Patrick Swayze? I mean, he looks like a hunk from the what I'm seeing, so like, they, they, <laughs> they casted him well. Oh, and, and don't worry. They do have the pottery scene. There's stills of it on Google Image. Oh, uh, so. yes. Great. I got to check that out. Her son, Yoishi, is played by Rikia Otaka. Really, the only other thing that he was in that I noticed of note was he's in Ringu 2. Um, it doesn't look like he has a ton of credits past 2005. Yeah, I read that he was retired. Yeah. Yuichi Numata plays Takashi Yamamura. He is the, like, old man who is kind of the link back to Sadako and her mother Shizuko's whole backstory. He is in a fucking rad old movie called Jigoku, which was a bunch of people meeting at the gates of hell and talking about their stories of like how they got there and everything. Wow, that premise sounds fucking rad. Yeah, it's a pretty great movie. He was also in Female Prisoner 701 Scorpion, which was, that's like a whole crazy weird exploitation series. He is also in Ringu 2. Sadako is actually played by a kabuki actress named Ro Inuo. She also appears for Ringu 2. I love the fact that they got a kabuki actress to play this role because, again, you don't really need an actress as much as you need a performer to play the role, if that makes sense. Yeah. You need somebody who is in control of their body and their movement. Her movements are so terrifying, otherworldly, and straight-up demonic. It's such a physical performance. That's what this movie, like, everyone, like, even the American remake, it is, like, the linchpin of the movie is her crawling out of the TV. And you needed an actress who could really, like, capitalize, like, those awkward, clumsy, like, jerky movements of a spirit. Yeah. She fucking nails it. Is that her eye as well, when they do the close-up of her eye, looking really menacingly, killing him? That is not her eye. Okay. That is the eye of a male crew member who plucked out all of his eyelashes. (laughs) Oh, okay. Fuck, okay, yeah. Wow. As far as, like, the movement goes... So much of the performance was that just simple old trick of her physically going backward, right? Her walking backward, her crawling backward, and then the foot is just being played in reverse so that she's moving forward. And that's what gives a lot of that weird kind of creepy herky-jerky movement to the whole thing. Miki Nakatani plays Mai Takano. She is a very fleeting character in this first movie. But then she is a major character throughout the sequels. I figured as much. Her performance really did feel like if there is going to be a franchise out of this, like this is a character we can spin off with. Yeah. um, With like being the student. Is she supposed to be a psychic in training, basically? She is a psychic. You ultimately learn that in the series. She it's never alluded in this first story that she is, you know, obviously her relationship with Ryuji, you know, like you said, he is a medium and you get that she is one of his students. 
in the American version, the implication definitely is that this is just a student that he is fucking on the side, yeah. right? And she just kind of happens to be there awkwardly, dot, dot, dot. The American version does also play up some weirdness, though, because she enters and exits the story in very creepy, weird, crossing paths kind of ways, and she very much looks like an older version of the Samara character they play up that character in the u.s version but don't do anything with that in this one it's definitely kind of starting her off as a launching point for her to be the main character going forward but yes she is also in spiral which is kind of the weird lost sequel i guess we'll say Ringu 2, she is in Chaos that Nakata also directed that I mentioned earlier. Um, Memories of Matsuko is another movie I saw with her. She's also in a lot of Japanese TV. So that finally gets us down to one of my favorite Japanese actors currently. And he is probably the most well-known in Western cinema actors from Japan in the last probably 30 years. And that is Hiroyuki Sanada, who plays Ryuji Takayama. So... He started off in the late 70s acting, but it was really Ringu. It was really this movie that, like, threw him into Western movies in a pretty heavy way. And he has been in stuff nonstop since. So he's in Shogun's Ninja with Sonny Chiba from whale back in the day. He is also immediately in Spiral and Ringu 2. And then from there, he kind of crosses over into U.S. stuff. So he's in Twilight Samurai, which that's not a U.S. movie, but that was a movie that really blew up big. You know, in Europe and in the U.S., it was a big festival movie. Um, He was in The Last Samurai. He was in Danny Boyle's Sunshine. He's in Rush Hour 3. He is in the Wachowskis' Speed Racer. He was on the television show Lost for a long time. He was in The Wolverine, the whole middle movie that was set in Japan. He's in Life. He was in fucking Avengers Endgame. He is literally in what is now the number one movie of all time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he has that memorable scene with Hawkeye when Hawkeye's still Ronin. Yeah, memorable as in it was all of 30 seconds that he was on screen in the movie. It was was good for poses of him like tissue paper i love how he's like look at the world killing me is not gonna solve anything yeah it was fine i just wish he was in the movie a lot more than they more had done it, more yeah. with him right he's also in westworld he was in Zack snyder's army of the dead he's fucking scorpion in mortal Kombat. scorpion yeah which yeah, he's pretty fun that. in that just seeing him as like a yeah. fucking hell demon revenant he's also in bullet train that is currently out he is going to be in john wick 4 which how the fuck did they get to John Wick 4 before they got him in. Yeah, seriously. And then apparently he is in an FX miniseries remake of Shogun, which I'm tentatively interested in. Yeah, (laughs) so that could be kind of fucking cool. Alright, so now let's go down the fucking rabbit hole. Alright, here we go with the sequels, baby. Like I mentioned, I have always liked this movie. I have always especially liked the Gore Verbinski American remake. I have never really fucking dug into this series any deeper than Ringu 2, which I saw years and years ago, like probably right after I saw this movie that we're discussing, but I have not seen it since, and I didn't realize that there were that many other movies that had come out since then. Yeah. Let alone all the TV versions that have been made, let alone the fact that this was based on a fucking book series. I had no idea. 
And did you know that they had a Freddy versus Jason style movie with... I did know that, The yes. ghost from Ring versus the ghost from The Garage? Yeah, because that was the first Shudder exclusive movie that came out was uh, Sadako versus Kayako. The, the only other movie I have seen from any of these beyond Ringu and The Ring is, again, the American... The Ring 2, which is a sequel to the American remake, which yeah, that blows my mind that Nakata directed that. I did not know he did that. Yeah, and Takahashi wrote it as well, too. It's literally like the same team. I don't remember hating it when I saw it in theaters a long time ago, but I don't remember particularly liking it either. I remember not liking it. I've not seen it since. You haven't seen it since? Nope. I really wonder how it's aged. It fucking played like gangbusters because it made a shit ton of money. Yeah, whenever we get around to doing the U.S version i will definitely dig into that movie again because i have not seen it since it came out i saw it in theaters and was like uh but that's bad well at least i always have the first movie and never looked back right i also did not see rings from 2017 which my understanding is more I heard like, that was bad <laughs> it's bad oh by the way youtube is a thing now because who the fuck has a vhs player <laughs> so anyway yeah i did not realize that this entire fucking franchise started with these books so koji suzuki wrote ring in 1991 spiral in 1995 loop in 98 birthday in 1999 s in 2012 and tide in 2013 which tide as of right now is the like final last book so i did not have time to dig into these books i really wanted to i could not really easily find audiobooks which i do not have time to like fucking sit down and like actually look at words and read i wish i did but i don't i could not find an English translated version of these. Now, there is a guy on YouTube who is apparently translating them himself and reading the books chapter by chapter on YouTube, but he is not finished with the series. So I was just kind of like, well, why bother, right? Yeah. But these books are available. Ring, very much the story that we have here. I've already kind of talked about what the main differences are. It ends like this movie ends where it's like, well, I figured out the fix. We have to make somebody else copy the tape or my spouse and my child are going to die the end of the movie and that's kind of it it <laughs> kind of leaves you hanging a little bit yeah spiral then follows a medical examiner who is doing the autopsy on ryuji takayama's body after the first movie that's an interesting premise. I like that. Yeah. You find out that they knew each other during college, and they were buds, and now Ryuji is reaching out to him psychically from beyond the grave to kind of steer him into, like, solving the murder and figuring out what's going on and stopping the whole ring situation. I think I brought that up in a past episode. I think it was with Shelby or when we were talking about the changeling. The idea of, like, when you are killed by a murderous ghost, there you go, you know that there's an afterlife, you become a ghost or something. Yeah. Wouldn't you be fucking pissed off at, like, the ghost that killed you? Yeah, of course I would try ending this curse to fuck over the ghost that killed me. Yeah. That makes Makes sense. <laughs> My Takano shows back up, again, the student of Ryuji's, who is also a psychic, by the way. She also shows back up in the story. And the two of them kind of dig deeper into investigating the whole ring curse thing. This is where they discover that it's an actual physiological 
virus that has somehow transmuted from being just her psychic anger, like Sadako's actual curse anger, into becoming an actual physical virus, similar to smallpox, that is killing people. That's a lot where more the sci-fi edge yes. comes in. Oh, and just wait. It also kind of becomes this whole thing where, okay, shit, well, we destroyed the VHS tape. So why is this still going? Oh, because Reiko Asakawa, the reporter from the first story, right. she basically, or I say she, he, because again, it's a guy in the books. He basically wrote down beat for beat everything that happens on the video in his little journal. So now people are reading that journal and it's perpetuating the curse through that. Okay. Uh, I don't know about that, but all right. <laughs> no, 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 just, just stick with me here. You then find out that through weird, deep, genetic memory, very similar to all the bullshit in Assassin's Creed, Sadako is able to rebirth herself through Mai Takano, and she kind of takes over Mai Takano's consciousness a little bit and gives birth to a rapidly, like, grows up into in a fully adult, in like a day, weird baby clone of Sadako. So, Warlock 2? Yes. Don't you want to hug your son, mommy? <laughs> yes. The whole thing ends with, okay, cool, Mr. Medical Examiner guy, you're going to pass on your genetic memory, and you're going to get your dead son back that you've wanted this whole time, but we're going to keep perpetuating the ring curse, thanks to you. You are now complicit in this whole thing. Thank you so much. The curse is now out in the real world. Oh, by the way, Ryuji Takayama was in with Sadako this whole time, and now they are, like, together, and they brought this curse out into the world. Yes, you destroyed the videotape and yes now you have the journal but now like the journal is being turned into a novel that is going to get published and it's going to go out to the public and it's going to further perpetuate everything right it turns into this crazy shit yeah i read that at one point sadako actually revives his dead son that's what i'm saying yes that yeah, he's kind of cool with it even though like all this bad shit's happening now oh yeah ryoji's just like i did it for the greater good <laughs> he would rather watch the entire fucking world burn down just to get his dead son back ryuji's like yo i'm going full traitor on the human race but this is the only way to further push humanity to the next stage of evolution oh that's a trope i do like <laughs> yeah we have to transcend our like frail bullshit so i'm gonna introduce this ring curse on a widespread scale we are gonna like separate the wheat from the chaff and this is gonna push human evolution forward and sadako is gonna like bring the pain to the human race that's gonna like help us transcend it is wild shit. That is just the first sequel book, okay? Jesus Christ, okay. So the second sequel book, Loop, introduces a completely new character. He learns that both of his parents worked on a secret government supercomputer called the Loop. <laughs> I already see where this is going, okay. That created a virtual reality. Oh, good, 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 okay. All of the events of the first two stories take place inside the virtual reality of this supercomputer, and the supercomputer is modeling how viruses replicate and how life on Earth came to be. Because there is an actual cancer that is destroying the human race. And so they're using the supercomputer to model possible worlds 
with these other viruses and how they replicate in a way that they can figure out how to stop the actual cancer that's ripping through the world. This guy follows the weird breadcrumbs through this whole thing, trying to figure out the mystery of this supercomputer and this virus. And his dad has this cancer, and everybody that worked on this project has this cancer. And eventually he finds that all of the events, all the crucial events that happened in the lives of the reporter from the first story, the medical examiner from the second story, Ryuji, and Sadako. If you cross-reference the actual locations of all those places, it gives you coordinates for a location in New Mexico. He goes to New Mexico, finds another crazy lab. There's an American scientist there that's like, yo, you're finally here. We have engineered every fucking event thus far to oh, bring you man. right okay. here at this point in time not like in this spin okay you are the fucking weird clone child of one of the main characters who has now come back for this exact purpose you need to throw your consciousness into this virtual reality world in the loop computer and you need to like use your exact perfect genetic weird memory because because you are immune to the ring virus and you're immune to this real world cancer that we're dealing with because you're this special clone TM. So now we have to throw you into this artificial reality where you can then actually bind with this machine code and figure out the cure for this crazy cancer. And the guy is like, well, cool. Will I ever get to see my love and my family again? And he's like, uh, maybe get in the machine and that's just kind of how it ends. It's like this guy getting into this virtual reality and just kind of vaporizing, right? Done. That's it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that's kind of the trilogy. Birthday, which came out the next year, 99, is an anthology of short stories. One of them is about Mai Takano. They, like, find her dead in an air shaft, seemingly having given birth recently. And obviously we learn that, like, she spits out a clone of Sadako. Jesus. So it's all of that story in that moment of her waking up in this air shaft and realizing, like, wait, what's going on? Wait, I'm pregnant? What? And, like, literally her giving birth to this clone and the clone getting up and growing into a full-grown person and walking off and being like, bye, and smiling at her evilly and leaving her for dead. The second story is about Sadako at age like 19 or so. She joins an acting troupe. She kind of has a relationship with the sound guy. There's all this back and forth jealousy with the weird kind of old man Lech director. And other people in the cast find out she has psychic powers. Dot, dot, dot. Like that's the whole story that leads up to like her getting actually killed and dumped in the well. And then I think the last story was about the reporter guy who worked with the reporter character from the first story, him finding the sound guy from the middle story and interviewing him in present day, because that happened 30 years ago, and getting all these details, right? So it's just like this weird anthology thing. Which I do have to say, that guy who helps her, who also, I guess, works at the newspaper, he's a hero, like unspoken hero in the movie, because he he does some wild research for her and gets results for her within the seven days that she's cursed. Yeah. And then he goes on to like be a fucking chump in the sequels because he's a side character in both Spiral and Ring 2 and just kind of I'm, gets his shit handed to him in both situations. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming Sadako kills his ass at some point. So Then we go to 2012's 
fourth, this is the fifth novel, S. Jesus Christ, <laughs> okay. This goes even more meta, because now it's a guy who works for a special effects CGI company, and his production company is working on a movie adaptation of Ring based on the novel, adapted from the journal by Asakawa, based on the videotape and, like, all the other bullshit. So it's, like, further perpetuating the Ring virus to, like, an even wider audience. So we still don't know what happened with the loop computer? That comes back around. Okay, okay. Like a Ring? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's just (laughs) all about this guy who works for an effects company, and they're making a movie version of Ring. He then starts getting involved with this whole thing about the serial killer who was obsessed with the whole story, and he is murdering all these women that kind of look like Sadako, and then you find out that his wife was supposed to be his last victim, and then it comes out later that, oh, that guy actually wasn't the one killing people, it was this other character killing people, and he was killing these women because they were all clones of Sadako. <laughs> And that this guy's wife was, like, secretly one of the Sadako clones this whole time. (laughs) What? Right? Okay. And then the last novel, Tide, is even the weirder fucking one where it bounces back to the guy who is in the virtual reality computer. It's literally him experiencing all these other side story things through the genetic weird time space memory of all the other main characters from all these other stories. He's basically Paul from Dune traveling back through ancestor memory to look at weird aspects of the story that weren't really uncovered to begin with. Like what was the relationship between Sadako and her mother Shizuko right like it explores some of that stuff but then literally at the end of the story he like implodes on himself into a black hole and the entire virtual reality thing like brings down the entire rest of existence around him literally ends the entire thing in this giant apocalypse apparently so was all right to clear this in my head were the events of the ring and spiral all just in virtual reality like that were all just dreamed up by this computer apparently like so. they actually didn't happen apparently so yes but those people and their weird virtual reality memories all get genetically imprinted onto this guy in the real world and it all implodes on itself yeah yeah the, so the supercomputer and him basically like end the universe okay. yeah so like i mentioned it gets <sighs> way more insane and batshit it gets way more sci-fi it gets way more heady and philosophical I don't like any of that and guess Just what keep it supernatural nobody has really been able to make it past the first two books as far as adaptations go (laughs) why would they that's right there's no way you could make a movie out of that there are bits and pieces that I'm, i'm about to talk about like the actual film and tv stuff now there are bits and pieces of these that have adapted elements of the other stories but nobody has really pushed past that point for the most part at least not in a faithful way. It seems like the sequels and like what became the movie franchise leans way more into the supernatural ghost territory. Yes. And that's yes. honestly the smart move, in my opinion. Yeah. It never really fully goes into the whole loop, oh, by the way, this is all virtual reality bullshit. Nothing that I saw, at least, ever really crosses into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Again, we start with Ring Kanzenban, which was a made-for-TV movie from 1995. It is an SOV movie 
It is a very faithful adaptation of the original novel, warts and all. You can find it on YouTube very easily with English subtitles and everything. It's pretty easy at this point to find the original broadcast version and the home video version, which the home video version has nudity and some more gore in it. So if you want a fairly kind of clean version, maybe look for the broadcast version. It's not bad, but it still incorporates a lot of the elements that I'm just kind of like, eh, we don't need this from the original story. Yeah. The Takayama character is a fucking lech. He is definitely just a Jordan Peterson-esque, I am smarter than everybody else around me. I know exactly what's going on. I'm the most man ever. Up yours, woke morals. Basically, he (laughs) brags about being a rapist. I am just beyond all morality because I am the smartest dude ever. And I figured out all these mysteries of this fucking videotape because I'm the smartest guy ever. He's just much more of a shitheel, awful character in the book. And like, not at all interesting in that whole oh you seemingly started off as a regular dude who had decent aims and goals and everything else and then you kind of became this weird turncoat to humanity because you were like greater good bro tm i don't know like there are certain things about the original story that i just don't jive with and this being a very faithful adaptation of all that still keeps it all in there but i think it was at least interesting because it's enough of the stuff that you're used to that you know But again, this is a very faithful adaptation of the original story. So if you want to see what the original intent seemed to be, maybe check that out. Okay. So that brings us to 1998, where we have this movie that we've been talking about, Ring, Ringu, and Spiral, a.k.a. Racin. It came out the same year. came out the same fucking year. Wow. Both were literally marketed as like a double feature, which is fucking wild that they did that. That They like immediately moved all their chips on like, we're going to make the first movie and the second movie and we're going to put them out at the same time. Different director? Different director. Entirely. Different director, like different team. There are characters that cross over in Spiral though. So, Hiroyuki Sonata and Miki Nakatani both show back up as their characters from the first movie. Like I mentioned, this is the one with like the medical examiner who kind of becomes the main character. This movie, to me, honestly, felt way more like a David Fincher movie with an Angelo Badalamenti score. Really? It was very, very strange because it's totally very different from Ringu. It visually has a different style altogether. The music is very different. Like I said, it literally feels like a director who was very influenced by Seven, but then also Seven in like the game, right? But then also loves fucking Twin Peaks and Angelo Badalamenti's score. It was a very different feel. There were definitely things about it that I found to be a lot creepier than Ring. I don't know why this one is so poorly regarded i thought it was a perfectly serviceable sequel considering that anything that you do past this first story becomes instantly convoluted there's no getting around it yeah unless you just completely change the story for a movie franchise universe well we're gonna get to that yeah (laughs) so spiral again is a more close to the original source material story 
I honestly kind of like the way that it ends in this weird apocalyptic. Oh, Sadako has rebirthed herself. Oh, so they go there. They, oh, go, they go there all the way. Ryuji is now like back alive again. Wow. Okay. And we're committing to this entire like, oh, we are betraying the human race by like bringing the ring virus to its next evolutionary stage. And this is we have to push through and do this for the sake of everybody. And it just kind of ends in that apocalyptic way. So I kind of fucking dug it. Next year, 1999, we have Ringu 2, which, like we just mentioned, this was, oh shit, the first Ring movie, huge hit. Nakata was like, cool, I want to do a sequel, not at all based on the source material. So I want to, like, take what this movie does and fucking run with it in the completely different direction. A Rob Zombie version. (laughs) Of 2, yes. So (laughs) Ring 2 is following Mai Takano, she is starting to investigate the entire what's going on, right? Who is this woman that was involved in all this? Oh, it's the ex-wife of my teacher. What happened to him? It's mostly her investigating his death. She goes and talks to, like, one of the other teenagers that saw the tape. She also eventually crosses paths with Yoichi, and she bumps into Raiko again. She finds both of them, which, oh, by the way, in Spiral, they completely get fucking fridged out at the very beginning. <laughs> Okay. The medical examiner guy gets called to a scene and it's like, oh, there was a car crash. The woman died and she had a videotape machine in her car along with this cassette tape and it's all destroyed. She was coming from her father's house and her father is now dead and her son was in the car and her son is also dead. By the way, her son was dead before she got in the car. So it's kind of the weird initial mystery of, okay, my friend died. I'm doing his autopsy. By the way, he reached out to me as a ghost and was like, yo, you got to solve my murder. But now also these characters from the first story are like dead in a very tragic kind of weird way. In The Ring 2, they're not. They are totally in the story. They are active in the story. They had been in hiding. My Takano crosses paths with them and it's like, yo, we got to figure out what's going on. You know, and that's where they kind of tell her like, look, the only way that you're going to get around this is you got to copy the tape. If you've seen it, you got to make a copy. You got to pass it off to somebody else. It gets kind of weirdly interesting because there's this whole scene where it's now implied that Yoishi, the son, has fucking crazy psychic powers like Sadako. Like somehow she passed off her powers to him and now he is cursed. There's this whole thing where they're trying to essentially exercise him. They have him hooked up to all these machines in a natatorium because Sadako specifically can control water water reacts weird in her presence that's like what she uses as a weird medium to float between her world and ours essentially that's an interesting add-on like a sequel add-on to yes something i actually kind of dig that the american movie kind of runs with that a little bit too. yeah yeah i remember water being a lot more of a thing in the american remake yeah you know they go to this whole thing and the spirit comes and the pool water is moving around and all the machinery blows up and Mai gets knocked into the pool which then knocks her into the well and she has this confrontation with Sadako and everything else so that one also pretty interesting I found it to be a little creepier and more unnerving and more straightforward horror than even Ringu was so honestly my take is I would definitely say watch both Spiral and Ring 2 even though they are both competing sequels and have different storylines kind of think of it in that multiverse way of cool this is version A this is version B of how the story could have gone yeah with the amount of convoluted bullshit slasher franchises we have 
this is tame. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> but from here is where it gets kind of bananas, and this is where it's like, okay, at your own risk. So that same year, 1999, there is a Korean remake called what? The Ring Virus. I didn't know about this one. Yes. Okay, this is news to me. It is also pretty straightforward, The Ring. There are some minor changes to it. Obviously, all the character names are a little bit different. Sadako is kind of reworked into a slightly different thing that I think is more just like a, how do we culturally translate this? It's fine, but it is kind of a, you don't have to really bother with that one unless you're just really interested. Then there is Ring, the final chapter, which was a 12-episode TV adaptation of this whole story all over again. You watched it? So I did not. Okay. I did not okay. watch any of the TV stuff beyond the first TV movie because I don't have time to watch yeah, 12 I episodes of Ring the Final Chapter plus 13 episodes of Racin, which was the follow-up TV show, which again is Spiral being adapted with a few elements from Loop, apparently. All of that came out in 1999. So literally the year after Ringu, not only have you already got two competing sequels, but you have a Korean remake, a fucking 12-episode reworking of the entire story for TV, and a sequel series that was 13 episodes. Well, and then the fuck? right after that, in 2000, they have Ring Zero Birthday, which is the prequel, yes. and they also release a video game called The Ring Terror's Realm for the Dreamcast. Now, I figured you probably looked into the video game a little bit. I'll, yeah, I'll let you talk about The Ring Zero, because I guess you watched that as well. I did watch because it. After the Ring Zero and after the Ring Terror's Realm video game, it seems like the series takes a break. Yeah, so you have Ring Zero. It's also called Birthday. It is a movie adaptation of the middle story from the anthology book Birthday. So this is like the prequel that shows Sadako, age 19, in the acting troupe. She kind of falls in love with the sound guy. She's kind of also the weird girl in this whole group, and people don't really like her. And by the whole end of it, it becomes this whole reoccurrence of her mother's whole tragedy of trying to show her psychic gifts for in front of a crowd that, like, turns on her and drives her to, like, kill herself. The same thing kind of happens here, except it's more just her castmates all turn on her and kill her. And then her spirit comes back and immediately, like, fucking decimates the rest of the cast. Oh, kind of like Carrie, I guess. Yes, it's very yeah. much like a revenge kind of thing, and it shows how she ends up in the well. That brings us to the 2002 U.S. remake, The Ring, the 2005 sequel to that movie called The Ring 2, which, again, we mentioned Nakata directed it, which was kind of a weird move. But I guess by that point, Gore Verbinski was deep into Pirates of the Caribbean land. The video game. That's right, yeah. yeah video game. Uh, video game, The Ring Terror's Realm, came out for Dreamcast. It is one of those weird oddity horror video games that's on Dreamcast that is now a retro video game collector's thing. Copies of it now resell on eBay and stuff for like 80 bucks. It came out in Japan in February 2000 and then in North America in September in 2000. This game is infamous for being like regarded as one of the worst games ever made. Kind of like the room of video games kind of thing where like it's huh. such a fucked up weird oddity that people like actually kind of look for it. A lot of the 
horror games on Dreamcast are now worth money because they're kind of like collector's items. What type of game was this? What style of game is it? So it's trying to be a clone of the Resident Evil games, the PS1 era Resident Evil games that had like tank controls and everything. It is so fucking weird. Here's the premise. You play as this researcher named Meg for the CDC in the United States. And suddenly her boyfriend, Robert, who also works at the CDC, as well as three other workers, just all die mysteriously the same day. And the only thing that links their deaths together is this program that was on their computers Uh. called Ring. Then the CDC goes under lockdown. Meg is trapped in the CDC because they're under lockdown. She basically looks into the, the mystery of her boyfriend's death and what this program called the ring is sure it had these moments where like you kind of go into the ring world and like fight demonic entities and then you eventually fight sadako or at least i don't think she's called sadako in this but it's just basically the ring girl sure. um, speaking of like weird sci-fi thing i think the way they do that is like it's a, almost like a virtual reality so I don't know much about this game other than it has one of the worst soundtracks I've ever heard in any game ever. <laughs> it's just this weird oddity and it's almost more loosely based off the Ring franchise. But yeah, I think it was a commercial failure. It's part of the reason why the Dreamcast folded as well as enthusiasm for this franchise pumping the brakes, even though two years later we have the American remake, which was really successful. Well, it seems like at least for the Japanese media, it was just too much too quick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's the main downfall was just it was way too much at one time and that IP just got oversaturated. I mean, I don't know how these newer movies are, but now like since 2012 with Sadako 3D, it seems like they're now putting them out every few years. Yeah. That's probably a better way of doing it. You know how a lot of people nowadays are like, God, there's too many superhero movies. And frankly, there are. But it's not just, oh, we're going to get three or four superhero movies a year. It's we're going to get three or four Captain America movies all within the span of two years plus a Captain America TV show a foreign remake of it a you know alternate sequel that didn't happen and oh by the way another Disney Plus series also about it like within the span of three years all that stuff comes out about the same character you know it's kind of samey in that way so I think it could just be oversaturation just way too much too quick and audiences back then especially were not used to that level of content I hate that word but you know that's how things are treated now but that's very much what this was was just like yo let's capitalize on this ip as quick and hard and furious as we fucking can while it's hot and it might have just been burnout from that ultimately and the video game i think is just probably the last symptom of that of like oh god now we've literally gone to you know video (laughs) game media yeah because there was also a manga adaptation as well that happened in the 90s i mean just so much happening all at once well and i mean sadako in japan has reached the level over the years of a freddy krueger here in the united states they've done weird like commercial spots i think she's even like shown up at like a baseball game to throw a pitch yes (laughs) (laughs) i've seen that it's definitely still in the their pop culture preview but uh yeah i think you're right i think there was just that initial blast of oversaturation yeah but it does seem like in the recent years that the series is being tapped into again because i mean fuck even earlier this year i want to say before the summer dead by daylight that horror multiplayer game that has all of the slashers and all of these characters from horror games where one person plays the serial killer that's right she's in that she was announced and added to that game as of this year as one of the playable killers so yeah it, there's definitely still a 
lot of interest in the, this franchise, but did you watch any of them after the 2000 birthday movie? So that's kind of where I stopped. So I watched, again, Ringu, the sequels Spiral, and Ring 2. Ring Zero, and then I watched the TV... From 1995. Correct, and the Korean one. But that's kind of where I stopped. So, in 2012, we also have Sadako 3D... And in 2013, Sadako 3D2, which <laughs> those are both, from my understanding, a very loose and unfaithful adaptation of S, which is the one where, like, okay, now we're making a movie of it, and there's Sadako clones and all this. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> in 2016, there was Sadako versus Kayako, which we just joked about, just kind of a Freddy versus Jason thing. That I am interested in, even if it's dog shit. That one's fun. That one's <laughs> fun. I definitely saw that on Shudder when it first hit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 2017, you have Rings, which was the most recent of the American series, and I heard it was boo-boo garbage like we just talked about. 2019, you have Sadako, which is Nakata coming back to the franchise. Did not watch this one. I could not really find it, and I heard it was very much not good. Uh, and that brings us to this year. Apparently, there is Sadako DX that is either out or supposed to be coming out. No idea what that's based on. No idea what that is part of a series of etc so apparently it was shown at a festival in july okay and it's coming out october 28th look at that perfect timing for everybody if you want to uh dig into this with us and then jump into that at the very end of the year it'll probably be on shutter i would imagine it's going to be on shutter somewhere like that so yeah that is basically it as far as the ring franchise goes and it was it's pretty hefty franchise so fucking interesting to dig into this entire giant rabbit hole i did not have any clue that all this other stuff existed before i started doing research for this well, and the, the interesting thing about this is how extensive this franchise is, but then how good Ring itself, just this movie, this episode is about, is because yeah. you can ignore everything else and just watch this movie and it's just as effective. Yeah. And I mean, I think I may go back and now watch at least Spiral and Ring 2 and see what those are about. But otherwise, I'm totally fine with, in my own headcanon, this being the only one and the American remake being the only one. Yeah. And if the Ring 2 sequel to the American remake aged well, then maybe, you know, maybe we could do that one as well. But like, I have a feeling it has not aged well. Oh, and another thing we didn't even talk about, Aaron, that much. Uh, another fear that like this movie does so well is it automatically puts you on a timetable with the main character because she watches the tape pretty early on and then it goes day by day. The movie like timestamps each new day and you're getting closer and closer to that deadline. So there's that degree of edge of your seat tension that you're staring down the barrel of a gun. Yeah, having that ticking clock is always an effective tool in storytelling because A, you're having to structure your story around that as an author, but you're also, as an audience member, your tension is just ratcheting up because you know you're getting closer and closer to that deadline yeah yeah as far as these movies are concerned they're pretty easy to get a hold of at least the first several so ringu that we've been discussing this whole time is available from arrow video on blu-ray you can get it in the uk you can get it in the u.s there is a standalone release of it very easy and cheap to get there is also a collection that is ringu Ringu 2, Ring Zero, Birthday, and Spiral. It's all four of those movies in a box set. 
that is also available on Blu-ray as well. And since those are Arrow titles, they are all on iTunes. And Arrow has every quarter, they have a fucking giant sale where all their titles are like three bucks. So if you catch that next Arrow sale, you could potentially pick up all four of those movies digitally for like $12. I want to say scrolling through either Tubi or Amazon Prime recently, I think I saw all of them there, and I know that they have also been on Shutter. So for anybody that wants to check these movies out further, they are all very easy to get a hold of for the most part. I think it's really just all those later sequels that are kind of tough to find, but weirdly enough, all this TV shit that I've been talking about, the original TV movie, all the TV series adaptations of these stories, all of it is on YouTube. There is literally a official Ringu channel that you can subscribe to that has all these things broken down to playlists. It all has subtitles, so it's very easy to get a hold of if you want to check it all out there. It's just obviously going to be shitty YouTube quality, but you can at least watch it. So, yeah, everything is there. Yeah. One last thing. I'd be reminisced if I didn't say uh, Scary Movie 3 significantly parodied the American remake of of The Ring. (laughs) And another fun reference uh, in other media was a random episode in, I think, one of the mid-seasons of the show Castle, the Nathan Fillion vehicle that went for several seasons in the 20-teens. Sure. Contains an episode called Scared to Death that is supposedly a haunted DVD that it kills people three days after they watch it. And I think in the episode, I read that there is a direct comparison between the curse of it and the ring. So there's that. And I would honestly say, again, I don't think even the Fatal Frame franchise would be around without this movie and how successful it was in Japan. I suspect that other J-horror we do in the future, like Julian the Grudge and Dark Water and Pulse are going to fucking scare me shitless in ways even greater than this movie. So, Bruh, really excited to talk Kyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. Yeah. Pulse is also very good, but man, Cure is so fucking good. Well, as far as like ghost supernatural J-horror, I don't know if Cure has ghosts in it, but you'll see. Cure is good. Yeah is very good yeah (laughs) i am excited but also very hesitant about us eventually doing the grudge in any uh, fashion because i feel like it's basically just more intense ring (laughs) yeah derek has an intense fear of vocal fry by the way that's like exactly what you are no it's bothered by is just people going no it's it's the (laughs) ghost the ghost and grudge is just way more terrifying to me but whatever (laughs) cool well yeah that is it for this episode of watch if you dare we just got finished discussing the ring and we have discussed christine so we have one more cursed object coming at you for Uh, this month oh boy is it is it a dinger of a cursed object yes and it will be very good timing obviously we are recording all these ahead of time so it'll be very good timing and you'll understand what we mean once this episode drops you'll probably be able to figure out uh but either way yes we have a great one for our final halloween episode it is a great halloween movie so yeah definitely definitely stick around we got some good shit coming
And with that, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, and my co-host Aaron, the movie Monster Boy. And I'm not going to go through what we are. You heard it in the beginning. Um, you can find us at all our usual podcatchers, Podbean, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, etc. Please continue to rate, review, and follow us, especially on Apple, Podchaser, and Good Pods. That's where we get a lot of our reviews from, actually. So please continue to do that. We are at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. You can also look at our music playlists on Spotify. Links are at the top of our socials for some spooky tunes. Um, that'll get you in the Halloween spirit for this Halloween season. Speaking of music, shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, Aaron, a.k.a. Party Gator on Bandcamp. He's also part of Opossums and Big Clown. Um, you can check out a lot of his music. As some of it's actually on Apple Music. Go over there and support him. Uh, he does the bumps at the beginning end of each of our episodes, and he also does the special bump we use for the season of Spoop. Yeah. So that's it. That's the podcast episode about Ring. Uh, that was... That was kind of a strange one, Aaron. That was a wild ride. That was longer than I was expecting it to be. That for this franchise is wild. I'm, I don't know how I feel about things. I, I feel kind of weird and strange. It's not of this world. It's Sally's Fury, and she's put a curse on us.